0: Okay, so we do have um, some handouts in the back there. If you didn't get one, you can go ahead and and grab one of those. And We're going to pick up this morning in Judges 14. We'll be looking at chapters 14 and 15, Lord willing, uh, which covers a good portion of the story of Samson. Um, And if you remember from last week, Will began walking us through the story of Samson and how the angel of the Lord came to his parents and told them that they would have this son and that this son would be set apart to the Lord from the womb. And we see in chapter 13, in verse 5, for the very specific purpose, as it says here, to begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines, who were currently ruling over the people of Israel again because of Israel's rebellion against the Lord. So let's begin with the first point on your outline, and that is the sovereignty of God in the affairs of men, which covers the last verse in chapter 13, verse 25, and it goes through chapter 14, verse 4. So if somebody could read, uh, read that for us, thirteen twenty-five through 4, 4.
1: Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, "I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah, and I will get her for me as my wife." But his father and mother said to him, "Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives, or among all our people, that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines?" But Samson said to his father, "Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes." His father and mother did not know.
0: Okay, good. Thanks, Lucy. So what should strike us, I think, mainly about this section is this interplay that we see here of divine and human motives. Uh, what is said about the Lord's involvement in the last verse in chapter 13 and chapter 14, verse 4, should help us to see these two verses function as bookends for this section. We have the Lord stirring up Samson in 1325 so as to fulfill what he promised that he would do with this man that he declared back in verses 5 through 7 of chapter 13, and that was to begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. And then in verse 4, we see the Lord's involvement in what is taking place in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 14. Now, Even though the narrator here recognizes God's hand behind the coming conflict between Samson and the Philistines, he describes Samson's actions as if they were entirely his own doing at his own initiative. That's essentially what we see in verses 1 and 2 here, that Samson goes down to Timnah, he sees a beautiful woman there of the Philistines, he goes back to his parents and demands that they get this woman for him. And so, the picture that we get here of Samson, right, is, is again a very dismal picture of one who was to lead Israel. He's, he's just this impulsive, self centered, lust driven young man who apparently is not intimidated at all by, by the Philistines. We'll see that um, as we continue to move forward in the narrative. Now, Upon hearing of Samson's desire here, we see his parents are understandingly disappointed with Samson's request to say the least. They respond essentially, isn't there a woman among the people of God that you can find Samson? Must you go to the pagan enemy to find a wife? So they lay forth this disappointment that we see here and And we see Samson's response, right? He's totally undeterred by his parents' urging and pleading. And he pleads with them to move forward on his behalf so that he might fulfill this intention that he has to have this woman of the Philistines. And what we really see here is Samson functioning as a type of what Israel is as a whole. What is said of Samson, or what is said of and by Samson here in verse 3, is later said of Israel as a nation in the last verse of this book. Notice here in verse 3, in chapter 14, but his father and mother said to him, is there not a, a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for, okay, here's the... Underlying thing here, she is right in my eyes. Okay? Well, when we go to the book of Judges, the last verse, what we see is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So Samson is a a, a little version of what Israel is as a whole, as we've been seeing throughout this throughout this book. Now, what Samson fails to realize, and as importantly. What his parents failed to realize is that God was orchestrating this whole episode in order to use Samson to overthrow the Philistines, right? Certainly, when God promised Samson's parents that their son would be used in this capacity by God, this wasn't how they thought it would play out, that our son's going to go down and get a woman of the Philistines, and God's going to use that to overthrow the Philistines, This wouldn't have been in their their training manual of how to bring Samson up and lead him in a way that God would use him to deliver the people of Israel. But one thing that we see throughout scripture is that God does not consult us as to how he should carry out his plans. His thoughts and his ways are higher than our thoughts and our ways. Now as we as we think about this section and we think about it from a practical standpoint again this section really teaches us what the rest of the Bible testifies to and that is that God is sovereign over all the affairs of men. Samson certainly was responsible for the decisions that he was making about taking this Philistine woman as his wife and yet God was governing all the moves that took place. Obviously we see this at its Pinnacle in the sufferings and death of our Lord Jesus, which Pillar, uh, Peter illustrates in Acts chapter two. If somebody can read that for us.
2: This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless
0: men. Okay. So again, what we see there is that mentality that God is governing all things and yet holds responsible. The men who crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Additionally, we see this same type of sentiment being expressed in Isaiah 53, which refers to the sufferings and death of our Lord. Here in Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 10. If somebody can begin reading that, it carries on to the next slide.
1: He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shear was silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He had put him to grief. Okay, see so
0: Yeah, thanks, Nancy. So you see there again in verses seven through nine what man is doing to the Lord Jesus Christ, as was prophesied by Isaiah here. And then notice verse ten, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Okay? So you see the sovereignty of God in the affairs of men. And you get a snapshot snapshot of that here in this account with Samson. Amidst all the sinful and and wicked actions of men, God was orchestrating the salvation that he planned before the foundation of the world, a plan to save a people from the hand of the enemy. Also, I think this concept of God's sovereignty over the affairs of men should bring us great encouragement that no matter what is happening in our lives, both in us and around us, God is orchestrating everything for the good of his people. Even in the midst of what can seem like the most hopeless situation, listen, God is doing something. There's nothing that happens in our life that God just says, this is random and has no purpose at all. Although we may not know exactly what it is that he is doing, we can always trust that he ultimately has the good of his people in mind, even though we probably won't fully comprehend all of that, this side of glory. God is at work. He is doing something, and therefore we can have hope. And this section here that we launch into this morning, really everything that flows after this is God working to deliver his people from the hand of the Philistines through Samson. And it's amazing when you see all these little details that you're like, Wow, why did they include that? It's to show us that God is sovereign over every last detail that is taking place in this situation. Okay, So hopefully that brings encouragement to our own hearts as we think about all the things and the complexity of life that take place within us, the things that happen to us on a day-to-day basis. None of that is random. All of it is orchestrated By God. And therefore, we can have hope because we know what Romans tells us that He's working all things for the good of His people. Sabrina?
3: I was just thinking of Joseph as well. Yeah. Where he says at the end, You meant
1: it for evil, but God meant it for good.
0: That's right. Amen. Yep. Very good. Good, Diana Yeah, I wanted
1: to know though, I'm a little bit confused um, because. um, Samson wasn't supposed to, the Israelites were not supposed to marry somebody outside of their of the Jewish people right? right that's correct and so but God still uses it but yep. that's not God's will
0: right it's, it's not will yeah so to do that. that's right you have what we would call the decorative will of God what God has decreed the secret will of God some have called it in other words We don't know how God's working through all these little things in every situation. And then we have what's called the preceptive will of God, or what God has revealed to us in his word that we're responsible for. So in other words, like Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us. So absolutely, we have laid out, we know what the will of God is, right? That he's given to us in his word, and we're to walk in obedience to that. Yet, even in the midst of sinful actions that are happening, God is still working in that. Now, that doesn't, like you, like you said, that doesn't just like, oh, well, God will work this out for his glory anyway, right? That's, that's the view that some people have taken, but that's not how we're to respond. We have the revealed will of God. So, yeah, very appropriate to see that, to say, okay, we know what we have been given from God. It's in his word. It's laid bare before us, and we're to walk in accordance with it. Okay
4: just in that regard, there's some some interesting things happening with the history here. Yeah. We know from 13.5, he is called to be a Nazareth. Correct. And it also says there, to save Israel from the Philistines. So in 13.25, this whole idea of the Spirit of the Lord stirring him. Yeah. It turns out in the language that stirring is, they don't really know what that means. But the, the more interesting thing is, he's being stirred to go to a place called between Zora and Eshtal. Eshtal was a pre-Israelite, pre-Israelite pagan um, place. So he's going to a pagan place. He's being stirred to go to a pagan place to find out, quote unquote, I and mean we know this: what the will of God is for him. He's being stirred to find out what he's to do. So he's going to a pagan place to, to do that. And then in the next four, three verses, he kind of goes his own way. You know, he says that basically, basically Samson Samson goes down to 9 Right. But the fact is, even God in this situation, hooking him up, in God's sovereignty, hooking him up with the Philistine wife, God's going to use that to basically defeat the Philistine. Right. So it's, it's, it's kind of even in the history of the places that, that
1: but
4: God didn't hook him up with let God, if you believe God is sovereign, God had control over that relationship. If you believe God is sovereign, yeah,
1: you kind of. I'm more confused now. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll talk to you guys.
0: Okay. All right. No, no. It's it's a good question though. Um, yeah, and that's why I brought into account what we see in in Acts and also in Isaiah 53 is. You know, God obviously laying out his preceptive will that we're not to kill or murder, and that's what we see happening to the Lord, and yet we see behind that backdrop that it was the will of the Lord to, to crush him. So yeah, here's, the
1: difference is, is Jesus was perfect. I mean, he certainly. did everything perfectly.
0: Oh, yeah, and yeah. And so it was still the will of God, where Samson right. wasn't doing anything, you know, like according
1: to the... the
0: Right, right, yeah. And he was supposed to honor
1: his mom and dad yeah. and
0: father, and he didn't do that. Yes. You know, he married, a, I mean,
1: he's doing everything that's against the
0: will of God. Sure, absolutely, absolutely.
4: Against the, the decorative
1: will of God. No, against the written, the word of God, you know, the, the verbal. It's like saying if I'm mm-hmm. sent to a university, which might be... Thing, that doesn't mean I have to join in on whatever oh, yeah. he's doing. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. The ungodliness. And just because he was sent, in, sent to an ungodly place doesn't mean he was supposed to fit in and do the ungodly things.
4: But even in that, God is using that to achieve his purpose.
0: Right. Yeah, and that's where you see the responsibility of man and... The sovereignty of God. And that's, yep. That's a difficult question. It is. How yeah. Do how did those? Yeah. How
4: does that balance
0: out? Right. Exactly. Okay. All right. Good. Good thoughts there. Let's look at this next section, which actually covers uh, the remainder of chapter fourteen. We see here the Lord's strength and Samson's weakness. So let's go ahead and read. Chapter 14, starting at verse 5, if somebody, maybe we could have a couple people read this section. If I can have somebody read verses 5 through 14, and then somebody verses 15 through 20. Who would read 5 through, okay. All right, we'll take uh, 5 through 14. Sonia, you want to take 15 through 20? Okay, thanks. Uh,
2: Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to vineyards of Timnah. And behold, the young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hands, he tore the lion into pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion, and honey, and honey, and he scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them and they ate. It. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feasting for so young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now... Put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle.
3: But it came to pass on the seventh day that they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us, or else we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited invited us in order to take what is ours? Is that not so? Then Samson's wife wept on him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have posed a riddle to the sons of my people. But you have not explained it to me. And he said to her, Look, I have not explained it to my father or my mother, so should I explain it to you? Now she had wept on him, and seven days after their feast lasted, and, ha- and happened on the seventh day that he told her, because she pressed him so much. Then she explained the riddle to the sons of her people. So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, till the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my r- riddle. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily and he went down to Ashkelon yep. and killed 30 of their men, took their apparel, and gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. So his anger was aroused and he went back up to his father's house and
0: Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best friend. Okay, good. Thank you. Okay, so let's uh, let's work back through this uh, this section here and see the Lord's strength and, and Samson's weakness. When we when we look at verse five here, we see that Samson was persuasive and convincing his parents to arrange this wedding for him with this woman of the Philistines. Evidently From what we see here, Samson must have been separated from his parents for some time because what happens next happens without any witnesses around. This young lion comes toward him roaring. He kills the lion, goes down to Timnah to meet the woman, returns home, then returns to take care, and in the process of doing that, turns aside to see what happened to the lion. And you have this swarm of bees collected in the dead lion and honey for the taking, which Samson takes advantage of, gives sums to his parents as well, but doesn't tell them where he got it from. Now, what's interesting here is the focus of this section seems to shift away from his interaction with the woman to his interaction with this lion. It seems kind of out of place in a sense in the narrative upon the initial reading, but as we look through the rest of this chapter and also into chapter 15, again, we see it as the hand of God bringing to pass what he intended to happen, as he stated in verse 4, an opportunity for Samson to overthrow the Philistines. But within this section here of Samson's confrontation with this this lion, we want to note a a few things here. We see that when the lion came roaring at Samson, the scripture tells us here that the spirit of the Lord rushed Upon Samson and gave him the strength to deal with this lion like he was a young goat, tearing it with his bare hands. Okay, that's a phrase that you're going to see come up a few times, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Okay, it's indicative of the rest of the Samson cycle that whatever good Samson is going to accomplish, he's going to do so only by the strength of the Lord. Okay, so the Lord strengthening him to deal with this lion is but a foreshadowing of the strength that he's going to display in the subsequent events that take place. It was meant to be a sign to Samson of the strength that the Lord would give him in these forthcoming confrontations. It really was a preview of what is to come, that this would be the Lord's doing. However, something else that we want to take notice notice of in this section, which has been a constant theme throughout this book, as it is also in the rest of Scripture, And that is not only the Lord's strength, but also man's weakness. What we also see happening in this section with Samson's confrontation with the lion is his weakness, again, in disobeying the Lord. Remember that Samson was not only an Israelite, but he had also been set apart by God under a Nazarite vow. As an Israelite, Samson was not to have contact with a dead lion. Okay, We see this in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 11, verse 27. And all that walk on their paws among the animals that go on all fours are unclean to you. Whatever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening. Okay, So that's, that's one level for all the Israelites. Additionally... What we see in number six is that one who is under a Nazarite vow was not to have contact with a dead body. Number six, six, all the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. So we see here the weakness of Samson once again. Not only does he defile himself when he goes into the carcass of the lion to take the honey, but he also defiles his parents. In that act as well, without them knowing it, by giving some of the honey to them, which is why we see in the text that he did not tell his parents where it came from. Again, this victory that the Lord was going to bring about, again, what it does for us is it magnifies the faithfulness of God to accomplish all his will in light of man's sin. As we move into verse 10, we're confronted again with Samson's disregard for his Nazarite vow. The text says that he prepares a feast for the wedding. Now, the Hebrew word here for feast encompasses two things, both much eating and much drinking. And again, Samson is completely undeterred by his Nazarite vow, which if you remember back in chapter 13, included no wine or strong drink. And then as we move through the rest of this chapter, we see this this game that's being played between Samson and these 30 men who were appointed as his companions, most likely to guard him, not just to kind of give him a, a, a bridal party. And so Samson, he lays this riddle before them, which they can't figure out. And so how they respond to that is they threaten his wife with fire to her and her father's house. And Samson's great physical strength here is overshadowed by his weakness toward women, in particular foreign women, which will be manifested more clearly in chapter 16 with Delilah. So Samson caves in, and the men solve the riddle because his wife rats him out to save herself and and her family. And then again, toward the end of this chapter, in verse 19, we see that the spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson once again. So there's that phrase that you have again, the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon Samson. It gives him the strength to strike down 30 men on his own to fulfill his part of the bet that he had made. And then after fulfilling this, in anger from losing, he leaves his wife and goes back to his father's house. Now, the most important point to keep in mind here is that all of this tension, listen, that has been created between Samson and the Philistines Is the Lord's doing? He's creating this tension as he is bringing to pass his desire to use Samson to overthrow the Philistines. Now, one of the things that really jumped out to me as I'm I'm looking and working through this section, and I kind of mentioned this earlier, is to remember that God is working out every detail in our lives for his glory and ultimately for our good. Just as we can see in this narrative with Samson, how every detail matters for what the Lord is going to accomplish. In the same way, he is working in our lives with minute precision to glorify himself and to bring about our good. As we see in Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things, right? So we look through this, we see all these little details that are going on here all things work together for good for those who are called, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So there are no wasted events or details even in the most mundane things of our lives. Okay, so that's that's a broad stroke there of what we see happening in chapter 14 of God working to overthrow the Philistines. Okay, so we see this tension that has been created here, and then as we move into chapter 15, we see this tension build even further. Okay, so let's go ahead here. Before we do that, Forrest would like to enter. I just wanted interject. to mention that we are very impatient. We yeah. expect God to work immediately.
4: Yeah.
3: Yeah. God we'll sometimes waits the last hour.
4: Yeah. And I think it's very interesting, and it says, Verse seven. went when he went down. Uh, he said he talked with the woman. She pleased him
1: after some time.
0: Yeah. And then you stop and think. Well, the, died, the the carcass has to rot. The birds right. have to eat it. Yeah. Then the bees would
4: probably go into the bones and make and begin to build their hive. Bees can't build uh, all that hive with creating all the, the wax chambers for all the honey overnight, right. it took time. Some of this, you know, in two or three words after some time, it right. took a long time. <laughs> right, right. So, you know, I, I was thinking about how we want things to happen quickly, and right. very often God's timetable is not ours. Yes.
0: It's very true. And that's exactly what you see at the beginning of chapter 15, good. the same thing, mm-hmm. after some days. <laughs> <laughs> right? So you, you have that, that theme there as well. Good, Good point. I want to go ahead and read through all of chapter 15 here uh, together, and then we'll make some some points uh, working through it. So let's see, if we can break this up, let's break this up into three sections. If I can have somebody read verses 1 through 8, who would be willing to take that? Diana Lynn, thank you. And then let's go through 9 through 13, who would be willing to take that? Sabrina, thanks. And then if somebody could take 14 through 20. Okay, Dave, thanks.
1: Visit his wife with the young goat. And he said, I will go in to my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be. Innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches, and he turned their, them tail to tail onto the torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timonite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Edom.
3: Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. Yep. And the men of Judah said, They have come up against us. They said, We have come up to you to find Samson and to do to him as he did to us. Then three thousand men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and And said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him
1: with new ropes, two new ropes, and brought him up to the rock. When it,
4: came, when it came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as slabs that had caught fire, and his bonds melted off up, up his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a monkey. I could give a donkey. <laughs> and he put out his hand and took it, and with it struck one thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramat And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that was at Lehi, and the water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore the name of this, the name of it was called Anhechor. It was at Lehi to this day, and he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines, 20 years.
0: Okay, very good. Now, let me bring to your attention again here, what Forrest had mentioned because this is really important at the beginning of chapter 15 where it says, After some days at the time of wheat harvest. Now, again, remember what I said as we were going through the beginning of chapter 14. Verse 4 really is the verse that overshadows this whole section where it says that the Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Okay. Now, why is that important as we move into chapter 15 and we see the time of wheat harvest because of how the Lord is going to act. Okay? So you can think about this time of wheat harvest. Man, there's plentiful opportunity to gather in all this wheat. And what happens here is God goes and torches the land of the Philistines right at the peak time where they would bring in all this grain and supply all the food. Now, that would probably make them a little upset, to say the least. <laughs> okay? But notice this is the purpose that the Lord was working in overthrowing the Philistines, which, are, which is why I've, I've entitled really the whole of section or the whole of chapter 15 out of a quote from Psalm 2, which says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord is continuing this tension here. And what we have in this chapter as a whole, as you can see from your out outline is the Lord, as he has been doing throughout this book, and in particular in chapters 14 through 16, is him showing the enemy the utter folly of their raging against him and his people. The way that he is overthrowing the Philistines is showing them every time they think they are succeeding against Samson as the Lord's representative, they find themselves again being defeated in a somewhat embarrassing fashion. Foxes with their tails tied with torches in between them running into, the, into your fields and burning them down. Right? I'm not sure. I haven't tried that in a while. <laughs> so that's a good question. But the spirit of the Lord rushing upon him there's a supernatural strength that's happening there. So that's a good question, Larry. I don't know exactly what that timetable would be, but.
4: How about tying a torch? Yeah. How about <laughs> that's
0: that? A yeah. And then, then you see this further humiliation here having a thousand of your men being killed with the jawbone of a donkey. Right, So, for an Israelite reading this in later centuries, he certainly would have been encouraged to see how the Lord strengthened his servant in some very unusual ways to take down their enemy. And really, what we see happening in chapters 14 through 16, and in particular chapter 15 here, is the Philistine stupidity being held up for all to see. They are made the laughingstock of Israel. And why? to show the nations the utter futility and stupidity of being an enemy of the Lord's people, even, and I underscore this, of his sinful people. Yahweh the Lord makes fools of those who make war against him and his anointed. And so what is happening to the Philistines is a message to all the nations of what we see in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 4. Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now we recognize that this passage is ultimately fulfilled In our Lord Jesus Christ. But we see types and shadows of this as we move through these narratives in the Old Testament. And that is this. It's futility to fight against the living God. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no doubt. Absolutely. So... As we look a little more closely here in chapter 15, that was just kind of a broad stroke of chapter 15, and I want to just pull out a few points here. As we we look in verses 9 through 13, we see the contentedness, notice this, the contentedness of Israel and them being ruled by the Philistines. So after Samson burned up the Philistines' grain and their olive orchards, The Philistines responded by burning Samson's wife and father-in-law with fire. They they fought fire with fire in that sense. And Samson then threatens to do further harm to them and gives them a foretaste of this by striking their legs with a great blow before going down to the rock of Edom. Now, in verse 9, the Philistines come up against Judah seeking revenge. And Judah inquires as to why the Philistines are set to attack them, and they respond by telling the men of Judah, essentially, that they're looking for Samson. Now, look at verse 11 and see how heartbreaking this response is by the men of Judah. Notice what they say here in verse 11. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? Their first question to Samson really is a sad question. Don't you know, Samson, that the Philistines are rulers over us? Really? Ought they to be rulers over us? Has not the Lord commanded us to repent of our idolatrous worship? Undoubtedly, as the next question shows us, the men were probably somewhat fearful of what the Philistines were planning to do to them. However, they have acquiesced to the Philistine lordship. Rather than repenting of their idolatrous worship and seeing Samson as a means by which the Lord might deliver them from the oppression of the nations, the men of Judah see Samson. Notice this, they see Samson as a threat to their current and I put this in quotes, peaceful bondage by the Philistines. And so they've come down to deliver over the one to the enemy who could be used by the Lord to deliver them from the enemy. Again, this has much to say in regards to our Lord Jesus Christ. So They've come to bind Samson and turn him over to the enemy. And notice this. This is amazing here when you read this. Essentially, what, what the, we haven't come here to kill you, Samson. No. We, we just want to turn you over to the enemy so that they can do that. Obviously, they thought this was going to be an issue. That's why 3,000 of them go down to get Samson. Right? It's not just like, hey, can a couple guys go get Samson out of the Rock of Edom? It's like, no, we need the whole group to go down here. There you go. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they would still be left with a, a thousand men. And, and, and again, it really reveals the depths to which Israel has spiraled in their idolatry. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And indeed, you know, as you reflect on this, and you think about this, just practically speaking, when we become content, it is sad when we become content to live at peace with the enemy. There's, there's a holy war from God's people that should always be going on. The war within against the indwelling sin that remains, that at times we are far too comfortable to live at peace with. But also, we ought to be constantly waging war against a world that is against God, just as we once were. Now, let me be clear, lest I be misinterpreted here. Our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And the weapons, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. That is, they're not earthly, right? Like a sword or a gun. That's not how we advance the kingdom of God. But rather, our weapons have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And our weapon is the word of God primarily in the gospel of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. So God has not called us to be fearful of our enemy or content to live peaceably in a world that despises the very things we love, but to be lovingly bold in confronting a lost, blind, and dead world of which we once were a part. And then lastly, what I want to see here in verses 14 through 20 is the power of God manifested in Samson's life. And I want to also see God's care for his servant. If you look at verses 14 through 17, it says this, When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it. And with it, he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down 1,000 men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. And that place was called Ramath-Lehi. Again here, what we see is the power of Yahweh, of the Lord to defeat his enemies. Samson takes the jawbone of a donkey, of a fresh donkey, it says here, to take down a thousand men. You know, if, if the text said that Samson took two mighty swords that were razor sharp to take down a thousand men, we'd still be astonished at at such a feat. But the jawbone of a donkey, nonetheless, it would have had teeth in it but but the jawbone of a donkey. Why? To magnify the strength of the Lord and to show the enemy, listen, to show the enemy how easy it is for him to take down his foes. And even when the Philistines think that they finally got the upper hand in this contest, Yahweh will show himself mighty once again, which is what will, Lord willing, will expound on next week. But, Not only do we see here the strength of the Lord in his servant Samson, but we also see his care for his servant in verses 18 through 20. We get a glimpse here of Samson's recognition of his dependence upon the Lord. And really, this is the first time that we see interaction between Samson and the Lord. And Samson recognizes that this is the Lord's doing, not his own. He says this in verse 18, you, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, right? So Samson recognizes that and we see the Lord compassionately condescending to tend to his servant. He wasn't through with Samson just yet. There was still work to be done in taking down the enemy. And listen, how this should encourage us, listen, he gives his servants what they need to accomplish his will. And that should bring great encouragement to us as we seek to accomplish the mission that the Lord has given us. He will supply every need that we have to both demonstrate his compassion toward us and to strengthen us to fulfill his will. All right, I'm going to finish there for today since we're out of time. We have two minutes for any closing comments or Anything that you might want to say? And we'll, Lord willing, we'll finish up the Samson story next Sunday. All right, well, let's go ahead and and pray. Well, Father, we want to thank you again as we see in this section the reality of your sovereignty over all things, Lord that you're governing everything perfectly according to your will. And Lord, that gives us great encouragement. As we think about our own lives, just think about the minute ways that you're working in, even what we would consider the most mundane type of situations, Lord. You are governing all things according to the counsel of your will. And Father, we thank you for, again, just the the beautiful reality that this is the Lord's doing. This was not in the strength of Samson to accomplish what he did. This was you working through your servant to take down the enemy of your people and to deliver them once again. And we thank you how this, again, is a foreshadow of all that was going to happen through what Jesus accomplished on our behalf that he intercedes for his people, that he fights for his people, that he destroys the enemy for his people, and he delivers us from the power of darkness and brings, him, brings us into, into the kingdom of God. We thank you for that, Father. We are utterly dependent upon you, even at times, Lord, where we don't confess that or even recognize it. And so help us, Father, as we think through this story and we see your mighty hand accomplishing your will, let us be greatly strengthened by that. You will accomplish all that you have planned. We give you the glory and we thank you that as your people, you have called us into this mission to advance the kingdom of God. Help us to be fervent to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.